This is the Baywell Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we enter a new season of Isaiah's prophecy. Times have changed, circumstances are different, but God's love remains the same. Yes, we charge into part two of Isaiah. Part one, part two. One through 39, and then 40 through 66, and things have, things have changed. So we, we titled the first part, I think it was a few episodes ago, Brent, you asked me about a review um, and we talked about short and long reviews of Isaiah, which I wasn't prepared to do, and maybe I'll be more prepared later. <laughs> but I do love this idea of a father disciplines his sons. That was the first 39 chapters of Isaiah is about warning. It's about God responding. It's about his people not listening. It's about woes. It's about, and now all of a sudden, everything we're going to see, everything has changed. We're in a totally different section. I've titled like the second part of Isaiah, um, Isaiah and Tikkun Olam. Tikkun Olam. I bet you could find, I bet there's a Wikipedia article on Tikkun Olam. And you can throw that in the show notes. Uh, it is not a biblical Hebrew idea. It would have come after the biblical era, after Talmud, maybe even more medieval. But the phrase Tikkun Olam has been since then a very popular Hebrew idea. It means the repairing of the world. The repairing of the world, tikkun olam. So I, I loved that phrase, and I said, I feel like the second part of Isaiah is all about God repairing the world, tikkun olam, and and our relationship to that repair, the part that we play, and that's what we're going to hear. Everything changes at this point. It's no longer warning, and you're all screwed up, and now all of a sudden you have experience of discipline. Um, you're sitting in timeout, like there, and that's not to make light of. I'm not trying to be funny, but. They they are now sitting in the discipline of God in Babylon. They are no longer being warned about Babylon. They have tasted of Babylon. And now Isaiah, kind of like what Elle said a couple episodes ago, um, there, there's the darkness, there's the reality, but there's an even greater reality of the thing that God is doing, the hope. And so their circumstances have changed, their situation has changed. And uh, unless you have something to start off with, I, I say, let's jump in. It's been, we didn't do a whole lot of text two episodes ago, so let's jump into Isaiah 40. Well, I do have two things. All right. Uh, first of all, would you believe if I told you that we've already talked about Takuno Alam back in episode 192? I would believe it. I would believe it. Boom. It was our, Got it. our preface to the uh, church history session uh, five. Okay. I like that. Excellent. And then the other thing is something that I've just been thinking about as we've been going through Isaiah, and I think it hit me hardest when we were talking about Isaiah 9. But there's just some of these passages that are so familiar. Yes. For various reasons. And I think we've got a lot of those coming up. But like Isaiah 9, we're reading, it's like, oh, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire, blah, blah, blah. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given. And like something, I think, almost physical happens in me when I hit that portion of the chapter. Sure. That is just so familiar. And we have, we never use any of that, the rest of it. Right. Like we don't, like if I, if I said every warrior's boot is used in battle, could anyone? Right. <laughs> I mean, ho hopefully a lot of um, Jewish people would be able to do this. Maybe not in English. I don't know. Or maybe in English. I don't know. But like that idea of like, oh, 
your rabbi can start saying a passage and then you can just continue it. Who could continue that? Right. Like, I don't know. I don't know anybody, but I think a lot of us could actually do it. If I said for us, for to us, a child is born to us, a son is given. Yeah. I think a lot of people could continue and the government will be on his shoulders because we use that passage so much. And I think this episode and the next episode, we're going to hit a lot of those spots where it's like, oh, that part sounds so familiar. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully we catch enough of the other stuff that we're not familiar with that we kind of do that same thing. And we, But you're absolutely right. There are some key passages in that second part of Isaiah, Isaiah 40 through 66, that we use a lot. And totally get what you mean. And I do. I, I agree. It's it's almost a physiological when when you've grown up in church your whole life and you hear that passage every year at Christmas multiple times. There is a physiological response to, oh, yeah, okay, that prophecy. And even when you're cognitively not in that same space, there is an an autonomic response to that for sure. Absolutely. Okay. Well, with that, let's let's get into this, this familiar passage of Isaiah 40. With no further ado. (laughs) Uh, Very good. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And here is one of those passages that I love so much, and one of those rough passages. And it's it's kind of a, a beautiful association for me. And yet, instead of doing any of my typical teachings here, what I really want to notice as we as we hear these words is, again, how things have changed. So we just got done with Isaiah 36, 37, 38, 39, that whole that history section with Hezekiah and Sennacherib, but then everything falls apart and we end up in Babylon. So now it's no longer destruction is coming. It's no longer what God will do as far as judgment. Now it's speak tenderly to her. Her hard service has been completed. Her sin has been paid for. Like we are now in a new day. And and because of what God has been doing, I think we even said it. There was an episode, um, I think we called it The Choice is Yours. And we said in that, like, because of God's judgment, there is hope. Because of God's judgment, there is hope. The judgment is what actually brings hope. And now we're seeing that. The judgment has taken place. The sin has been paid for. And because of this, the glory of the Lord will be revealed because of the things that God has done, because of the trial and the suffering and the the tribulation you have persevered through. Restoration will be on our doorstep. Go ahead and keep going. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass. And all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. 
Lift it up and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, Here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. All right, so we have this, uh, I mean, they're sitting in exile. They've experienced the discipline, however you want it, the judgment. I would imagine that on some level, you're, you're teetering kind of on that brink of despair. And the prophet's trying to bring you that hope. Like your sin has been paid for, and it's time to start looking towards what God is going to do in the future. And so that that little section there started off with a section like, with all this newfound perspective, like just remember, like men are like grass, like remember the things that are temporary, remember the things that wither. But in the midst of all of this struggle, and in the midst of being on the edge of despair, also remember what lasts forever, the word of the Lord. And that's going to be a theme of Second Isaiah. It's going to come back up. One of my other favorite passages in Isaiah 55, that, you know, uh, as the rain falls from the heavens and does not return to it without watering the earth, causing it to bud and to flourish, providing seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So my word, God says, goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty or void. It will always accomplish the purpose and the desire for which I send. It's that same theme. It's that same, it's that same idea here that there are things that aren't temporary. There are things that do not pass away, that don't fall away, like kingdoms and empires and and mankind. It's God's word. It's God's goodness. It's God's redemptive work and plan in the world. And so the passage kind of ends with this, God is at work, and it will be God that saves us, not our great theologies, not our great ideologies, not our great strategies. Those things pass away. But it's the word of God. It's the plan of God. It is God's love and care for his world, his creation, his people, that will, in fact, uh, put everything back together. So that's Isaiah 40, and I think we should just keep bouncing through. Well, question, I'm noticing in verse 9, it says, go up on a high mountain. If this is from the perspective of in exile, is there a particular mountain where they would have been that might be referenced here? You know, that's a great, uh, that's a really good question. I would not be able to say that from the immediate context of exile. I do think about, let's see here, you who bring good news to Zion, that's considered a mountain. Um, it's also considered a high mountain. It's really not a high mountain physically at all. It's We wouldn't even call Zion, the hill of Zion, a mountain. And yet in, in, theolo- in Jewish theological thought, Zion is the chief of all mountains, the highest of all mountains, not literally, not physically but the most highest and prominent. So I'm trying to figure out if that is, if that's the mountain that's being referenced there is Jerusalem is Zion. Um, I mean, one of the times you hear about a high mountain is Sinai. Are there, are there callbacks happening here? Almost like a remez um, to certain high mountains or is there an immediate or is there both kind of like John, is there a right high mountain that they're used to, but I'm not aware of one, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Good question. Okay. Uh, on to 41 then, starting in verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. 
I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All right. So beautiful message of this partnership. When we think of Tikkun Olam, God's not just going to do this on his own from a distance. He's going to do this with the help of his people, even in the midst of exile. And we talked before back in session in session two, uh, we could even link in the show notes that episode of Isaiah three, um, third Isaiah, should I say? Third Isaiah. Yeah, whatever episode that was. But um, the, the just the whole idea, I'm pulling out all these servant passages on purpose yet again, just so that we can remember all the way throughout what we called the servant discourse, how God keeps talking about his servant. He has a servant. He has a servant. And the servant is very blatantly, very obviously, he keeps saying, it's Jacob, it's Israel, it's his people. My people are my servant. My people are my servant. So he has this, there's this picture of this servant that partners with God. And who is that? It's identified over and over again. We're going to hear this over and over again. It's my people. It's it's Israel. It's Judah. It's Jacob. That's going to be his, the reference. But we can keep on moving. That was episode 64, by the way. Perfect. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand, and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid, you worm Jacob. Little Israel, do not fear, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer the Holy One of Israel. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp, with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. You will winnow them, the wind will pick them up, and a gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. Man, I just realized I heard that phrase, the Holy One of Israel, and I'm wondering how if that's a unique phrase to Isaiah. I, I'm just memorizing Luke right now in my daily disciplines, and I'm somewhere in the middle of Luke 4. Um, and it's right after Jesus has been in Nazareth. He's been kicked out of Nazareth, and he goes down to Capernaum, and he's teaching in the synagogue, and there's a man there who's possessed by a demon, we're told, and... Uh, the demon starts yelling at him, who are you, Jesus of Nazareth? Um, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. And he uses a really interesting phrase, the Holy One of God, um, which is not exactly the same phrase, but it's such a unique phrase, the Holy One of God, um, that I, I'm wondering if there's some Israel, some Isaiah callbacks. But I digress. The reason I have this passage in here is because my my old NIV subtitle calls this the Helper. The helper of Israel. So God says, you're my servant and I'm going to help you. You're my servant. You're in exile. You're suffering, but I am going to help you. And there's an an idea of a helper. I'm going to do something with that by the time the episode is done. So this passage here, this chapter gives us the image of God as helper. But uh, don't know if you got anything else there, but we can keep on. I think we got one more chunk here in this chapter. Well, in English, Holy One of Israel appears a lot in Isaiah. It appears once in 2 Kings, three times in the Psalms, twice in Jeremiah, and once in Ezekiel, but then like a dozen or a okay. couple dozen times okay. in Isaiah. So, so a very, it's definitely... Yeah. Yep. Okay. Do they all show up in the end of Isaiah or are they all throughout from beginning to end? It's all throughout. Starts, uh, the first one's in Isaiah 1-4. Okay. Well, right from the <laughs> like very beginning. Yeah. 
There you go. Uh, 1, 5, 10, 12, uh, 17, 29, 30. Like, it's everywhere. Okay. All right. I like it. But it, it does seem to be an Isaiah phrase of some yeah, kind. Yeah, sure. I like it. Okay. The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. I will put in the desert the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I will set junipers in the wasteland, the fir and the cypress together, so that people may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. Okay, and so we we see here this, um, you can just feel how the tone has changed. This is no longer the condemnation of Isaiah, whatever, 38. No, 38 is like the worst chapter to choose. Of Isaiah 28. It's no longer the the idea of that first part of Isaiah. It's... There's a whole new tone. There's a whole new message of God will help you. God is going to restore you. A message of restoration, a message of renewal. And um, if you don't have anything, I'm ready to jump over to chapter 42. Yeah, and I'll just say before we move on, like it's 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 not a partial restoration. It's like, oh, yes, right. All the trees, all the springs, all the, like everything you need. Absolutely. Very creation-centric language, absolutely. Okay, 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. For some, that could be one of those passages that you were talking about uh, earlier, Brent. That's Isaiah 42. When we hear this and we immediately think of Jesus, and yet we just saw in the preceding paragraphs that God's identified who this servant is. This servant is, is his people. And it is. that This is a prophecy for the people of God. The people of God. God's going to put his spirit on them. And they are going to bring, even though it says he, the he is a type. It's a, it's a, it's a metaphor. The people, there's a servant, a he. Uh, he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out, but that he is Jacob, is Israel, is his people. And so that's that's how they're being called to live. And of course, Jesus actually uses this phrase and talks about which Bible character? Brent, can you remember? He's talking about somebody when he says, a bruised reed he will not break. Oh, gosh. Um I don't know. Well, now I'm... Is it John the Baptist? That's what I, That's what my brain said, but now I'm second-guessing myself. That was not in my notes. I was started flying by the seat of my pants, which is always dangerous to do. <laughs> Let me see where that shows up. Let's look that up, Brent. Matthew 12, Jesus withdrew. Yep. And Matthew says this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Yep. So don't fly. Stick to the notes, Marty. Don't start making connections that you shouldn't make. That's the lesson we learn here, everybody. But yeah, so Jesus uses this to speak of himself in that in that instance, not just as a messianic prophecy, but as a this is what this is what God has asked of us. This is what I'm doing. I mean, here's the passage out of out was it Matthew said Matthew twelve? Yep. Yeah. 
Yeah. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others. This was to fulfill what was spoken. Okay, so this is Matthew saying, in the way that Jesus is doing what he's doing, in the way that he is living, in the way that he's bringing kingdom, in the way that he's doing his ministry, he is fulfilling this prophecy. And then he quotes that passage that you just read. And I, I even find that instructive because how many of us do our do our ministries today? How many of us construct our churches in a way that we would fulfill this same call to God's people? A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Like what kind of image do you get when you think of that phrase, Brent? A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. What does that communicate to you? I mean, it's like the the people who are already hurting, he's not going to like, he's not going to destroy them. Absolutely. And this comes right on the heel in Matthew of the disciples eating grain in the field on the Sabbath. And he's yep. like, no, like they're hungry. Yep. We're going to, we're going to restore their. Or even, or even right after that, immediately preceding this as the man who has the shriveled hand to which Jesus is so angry about how. The religious community is is treating him. I love what you said. There's no collateral damage to the way that Jesus is bringing kingdom. And Matthew says, that's what Isaiah was talking about. The people of God are going to learn in exile and through exile how to bring, to be a light, how to bring justice to the nations, because this is the kind of people that they have become. Exile has shaped them. They're, they're going to remember where they came from, all the stuff we talked about earlier on in our studies. And I, I just love that there that we see coming back around in our, in our new testaments, but love that little conversation there. Okay. Back to Isaiah 42 then. Indeed. Give us the next little chunk. This is what God, the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon. Those who sit in darkness, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See the former things have taken place and new things. I declare before they spring into being, I announce them to you. So here Boy, I see the... I wonder if Matthew, when he's quoting that, is like, yeah, I mean, he, yeah, I don't know. He does, it, it does explicitly say justice to the nations. It, it does explicitly say that. So, yep, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, the image that I get when I read, when I hear this section is I put in my notes advocate. Um, I think sometimes we read these sections um, in the, in the ancient days of Isaiah and the Bible, there is a legal uh, role, like... Again, their courtrooms are not like our courtrooms. They don't have courtrooms, but their their legal systems, their court experiences are not the same as ours. But there is a role that's played in the ancient biblical world of an advocate, somebody who is coming alongside of you to plead your case, to be there as somebody who is standing up for you and in that in that court of public opinion, in the role of the community, and sometimes, not necessarily here directly in this passage, sometimes it comes through stronger than other 
than others. But God, God seems to be stepping into that role saying, I've got you. I'm here for you. I know you've made some mistakes, but I will be your helper. I will be your advocate. I will be the one who comes like the language here is more of like coming. I'm going to come alongside of you. I'm going to take your hand and walk with you. I will be walking beside you. And that's that image there. But I don't know if you got anything else here, Brent. Nope. Isaiah 43, I think we have up next. Keep on going. Absolutely. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob. He who formed you, Israel. Sounds like we got that same character again there, Brent. Jacob and Israel. (laughs) That's the servant. Okay, go ahead. Certainly. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Sabah in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Man, hasn't the tone of the message of Isaiah changed? This feel like we're three chapters into this, four, 40, 41, 42, 43. And this sounds quite a bit different than, say, Isaiah, I don't know, 23, right, Brent? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's so depressing to read <laughs> Isaiah, what we called second Isaiah in session two. Yeah. But here it's just this constant over and over and I will restore you. I will restore you. I will be there for so much so that we almost stop hearing it. Like it's almost even hard to focus Yeah, because it's like the same poetic prophetic message over and over again. We're like, yeah, I get it. But this is when you hold this up against the first part of Isaiah, this is a drastic change in message. I think that's part of what El was saying a couple episodes ago. Um, Somebody came in on the back end and said, that is not the end of the story. And in the voice of Isaiah, let me tell you what the other side of this experience is. And I love that. So one thing that struck me as I'm reading this is this whole idea of giving people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. And obviously, like this is a this is a different scale and a different like number of people that we're talking about, like, you know, the image is a singular servant, but it's, you know, talking. So like, you know, whatever. But I wonder if the if the modern nation of Israel is using this passage when they're making their calculations, because I guess there was um, some number of years ago where there was like a single soldier that Israel traded like a thousand prisoners for. Or something. Sure, sure. And like the numbers and who those people were and what they like, you know, setting all that stuff aside, everyone's like, I can't believe that they traded so many people for just one guy. And I wonder sure. if they're basing it off of this passage. I don't know. I mean, I mean, who knows? It's a, it's a, it's a, well, let me, let me just make sure we make a couple of things really clear. Cause everybody's going to assume a whole bunch of stuff. By no means are we adding commentary that's pro Israeli and anti Palestine or anything like that right now. But just the image that you're seeing, I mean, I don't know what they, there'd be no way to know if they're justifying it that way, but here's what I liked about you bringing that up. I've always had a hard time getting my head around the, the, the image or the picture of this verse here and that modern day situation really allows me to get my head around what that verse 
can can be referencing one way to understand this idea of I will give people in exchange for you nations in exchange this this trading of hostages that we're seeing in our modern setting. Um, I, I that I've never even thought about that, but I find that to be a really helpful image when thinking about this verse and what could be said. And and you're right, there is an what just mathematically is an imbalance. Again, not adding any commentary, but just mathematically is we're, we're not one for one here where whatever it might be. And I think that's really interesting. Uh, among a whole lot of complicated things and feelings and situations, like just this interesting picture of like, Oh, that that's what God does. Like he's willing to trade anything in exchange. Sure. Yep. So moving on in Isaiah 43, do not be afraid for I am with you. I will bring your children from the East and gather you from the West. I will say to the North, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. I'm curious about the directions of that and where. Sure. Where where everyone was and what that might be um, saying, if anything. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Which of their gods foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right, so that others may hear and say it is true. Yeah, and you, I mean, you raised a good question there I wasn't even thinking about, but the, I mean, so geographically speaking, just the nations, the north would typically represent either Assyria or Babylon would typically be north, and then south would typically be Egypt. I think maybe the better way to even think about this is, when, especially Babylon, when Babylon would come in and conquer and they would take all these people captive and they would take, they would not take everybody back to exile. They would use their, uh, this captive peoples as a economic resource, an asset that they would then leverage and sell on, on the national, the international market. And so they sell these slaves and these captured, um, these war, um, these people that they've conquered and have taken taken captive, end up getting sent all over the world. Uh, Obadiah, we talked about, talking about the exiles who were in Safarad, which becomes Sardis later on. But how did they get there? Well, they got there in the Babylonian exile when Babylon sells off. And so you end up with people everywhere. People get sold to Egypt and to the south and to Cush, and people get sold to um to 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 the the Greeks or the Persians and people get like they just go everywhere and so here's God saying wherever they went whether they went directly to Babylon whether they got sold off to the west or to the north or to the south let's bring them all back home I'll say to the north and to the south and I think that's the that's the image in the picture that the diaspora we often like to talk about happened there's not just one diaspora it happens all throughout history happened during uh, the Babylonian exile happens again during the Greco-Roman period, happens again, like it just the diaspora has always kind of been a reality of the persecuted people of God. And even post-exile when a lot of them remained in Babylon. Absolutely. 100%. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord. And apart from me, there is no savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I am not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days, I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, 
who can reverse it. All right. So there's my third word. So Isaiah 41, I have the word helper. God is, God is the helper of Israel. 40, 42, I have the word advocate. God is the advocate of Israel. 43, I have the word savior comes out of this section you just read. I will say, I, even I am the Lord. And apart from me, there is no savior. I have redeemed and saved and proclaimed God as Savior. So Savior is my word for Isaiah 43, and I'd be ready to move on to Isaiah 44. But now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. (laughs) Another reminder of who we're talking about. Just checking. Yep. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. What is that? There's a little footnote on that word. Yeah, it's always Cheshurun a footnote. means the upright one. Yeah. That is Israel. I've okay. heard I've heard different explanations for when that word is is used. Um it's it shows up in Moses' song back in Deuteronomy. Um uh it, it talks about Yeshurun. Yeshuan Yeshurun grew fat and kicked, Moses said in his song. And I've heard that the word is often used um to talk about um, God's people when they are blessed, God's people when they are, you said it means upright one? Yes. Yeah. So when God's people are as they should be and they're experiencing shalom and they're experiencing not material abundance, but the abundance of God. But I've heard other explanations as well. So would have to ask Al about that one. Yeah. That Deuteronomy reference that you said is the only other place it appears in Tanakh. No way. It's just, it's really? just here and in Deuteronomy well, it's 30, 32 and 33. Okay. Wow. So I think okay. the one you referenced is 32, but yep. then it, it uses it again in 33, but that's wow. it other than here in Isaiah 44. Very interesting. Must have been the Deuteronomist. <laughs> just kidding uh, now. Nothing but love. Uh, I love it. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. Some will say, I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob. Still others will write on their hand, the Lord's, and will take the name Israel. So yes, it's another section where God's clearly identifying um, who, who the servant is, which is his people yet again. And again, like the, you're not seeing the conversation change. It is not that I'm saying it's a seamless single conversation cause it's not, but the conversation of this portion of Isaiah is this, it's all thematically the same and God is going to restore. And there is a partnership. There is a partnership between God and his people. That is why he's looking for a servant. He's called a servant. He's formed a servant in the womb. Everything that God has done has crafted his people for this moment because they're not just observers. They're they're physical participants. Like they're going to participate in the thing that their God is doing in the world. And what is God doing in the world over and over and over again? I'm restoring it. I'm putting it back together. I'm healing it. I am going to stand by you and help you and protect you and call you. And you are going to help me do the same thing for the rest of the world. You will be a light to the Gentiles. You'll... There is a thing that I'm asking you to do as I put the world back together. I think we skip ahead a little bit in this chapter, Brent. There's another section that kind of does similar things at the end, more towards the middle end of 44. (laughs) Middle end, a.k.a. verse 21 is where we're going. Remember these things, Jacob, for you, Israel, are my servant. I have made you. You are my servant. Israel, I will not forget you. 
I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing for joy, you heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, you earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests and all your trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. Right. We can we can feel the theme. We can sense what's going on. And we can keep moving to chapter 45. Again, going to the middle here, starting in verse 14. This is what the Lord says. The products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and those tall Sabaeans, they will come over to you and will be yours. They will trudge behind you, coming over to you in chains. They will bow down before you and plead with you, saying, Surely God is with you, and there is no other. There is no other God. Truly, you are a God who has been hiding himself, the God and Savior of Israel. All the makers of idols will be put to shame and disgraced. They will go off into disgrace together. But Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will never be put to shame or disgraced to ages everlasting. Right. So here in this section, I see, I see these same, like speaking to this experience that they're having in exile, like God has been hiding, like God's been, we haven't necessarily seen God, but he is at work so much so that all the roles are going to be reversed. They were the ones that weren't. And and I admit that like chapter or verse 14, a little tricky, like the language is a little uh, militaristic, but they've been on the other end of that militaristic experience. They've been the oppressed. They've been the one, the one in chains. And yet this message is people are going to come to you in change in chains, but what they're going to say is we see that God is with you, which makes me think of Isaac in the book of Genesis, but because of what you've gone through and because of, and I'm going to say this very clearly because of how you have gone through it, because you've because of what you've because you've experienced suffering and because of how you have decided to suffer in faithfulness the nations will end up seeing god now please don't twist that into some message about somebody's trauma and how you're supposed to suffer through trauma that's not the message of isaiah here it's not speaking about a victim of of abuse He's speaking to a group of people that have experienced imperialistic national oppression. Um, They've lost everything in a militaristic way. And God's saying, because you've chosen to remain faithful and suffer the way that I, you will be a light to the Gentiles and they will end up seeing God. Now, if you just take up sword against sword, if you just decide to fight fire with fire, nobody's probably going to see God in that. But because you have gone through this, the way that, and essentially God has forced them to go through this, he stripped them of all their ability because they were fighting fire with fire. They were trying to go toe-to-toe with Assyria and Babylon. They were fi- they were making alliances with Egypt. And God stripped all of that away so that he could remind them of the way of what we would call the kingdom, what the way of the kingdom looks like, so that the world can see a, a better version of, a better, a clear, more accurate depiction of who God is and how God works in the world. Do we have anything else in this chapter? Nope. Moving on to 46. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops low. Their idols are borne by beasts of burden. The images that are carried about are burdensome, a burden for the weary. They stoop and bow down together, unable to rescue the burden. They themselves go off into captivity. Listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnant of the people of Israel, you whom I have upheld since your birth and have carried since you were born. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. 
I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. So it seems to me that the tone, it's not that the tone is changing. The conversation isn't changing and the tone isn't necessarily changing a lot. But I do feel like now, like it's been so poetic. It's been so, God is going to save you. God is going to save you. God is going to redeem everyone. God is going to put everything back together. But in order to do that, I'm sure everybody who's sitting in exile is raising one very important question, which would be what, Brent? When is this all going to happen? Yeah, because it's not happening right now. So what are you going to do? This is all well and good, but what do you do with the oppressor? Like what do you, but, but Babylon is still here. Like I love the poetry, Isaiah. I love all the hope, but this is, and, and so the conversation starts to become more and more and more practical of what this is going to look, look like. And so I'm going to just start reading. I don't know if I'm going to do the whole chapter. I'm just going to give Brent a break here for a moment. Cause Brent's going to have some reading too, by the time we're done, I'm going to just start reading chapter 47 of Isaiah and just see just hear the message of what God has to say um, to the oppressor and about the oppression. Uh, Chapter 47, go down, sit in the dust, virgin daughter Babylon. Sit. So who is this directed at, Brent? Uh, At Babylon. At Babylon. Okay. Sit in the ground without a throne, queen city of the Babylonians. No more will you be called tender or delicate. Take millstones and grind flour. Take off your veil. Lift up your skirts, bare your legs and wade through the streams. Your nakedness will be exposed. Your shame uncovered. I will take vengeance. I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord Almighty is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence. Go into darkness, queen city of the Babylonians. No more will you be called queen of kingdoms. I was angry with my people and desecrated my inheritance. I gave them into your hand and showed them no mercy. And you showed them no mercy. Ah, I like that little little Boyd action <laughs> coming through there. Yep. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Paying attention to the to the to the pronouns and the characters. Even on the aged, you laid a very heavy yoke. You said, I am forever the eternal queen, but you did not consider these things or reflect on what might happen. Now then, listen, you lover of pleasure, lounging in your security and saying to yourself, I am and there is none besides me. I will never be a widow or suffer the loss of children. Both of these will overtake you in a moment, in a single day, loss of children and widowhood. They will come upon you in full measure. In spite of your many sorceries and all your potent spells, you have trusted in your wickedness. And have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am and there is none besides me. Disaster will come upon you and you will not know how to conjure it away. A calamity will fall on you that you cannot ward off with a ransom. A catastrophe you cannot foresee will suddenly come to you. And remember that this is a message to to the one on top of the power pyramid. This is the uh, this is the message to the superpower. We have to remember the context here. We can't just see this in an abstract vacuum. This is being spoken to the ones the the proudful, the arrogant oppressor that sits on top, taking advantage, exploiting other people, selling off slaves. This is where that message is directed. Keep on then with your magic spells, with your many sorceries which you have labored at since childhood. Perhaps you will succeed. Perhaps you will cause terror. At the count at the council you have received has only worn you out. Excuse me, all the counsel you have received has only worn you out. Let your astrologers come forward, those stargazers who make predictions month by month. Let them save you from what is coming upon you. Surely they are like stubble. The fire will burn them up. They cannot even save themselves from the power of the flame. These are not coals for warmth. This is not a fire to sit by. That is all they are to you. These you have dealt with and labored with since childhood. 
All of them go on in their error. There is not one that can save you. So we hear with some sense of clarity the message that God has for the oppressor. Um, And this is that section. We got one more chapter left, but I wanted to pause here because all throughout this section, I couldn't help, but I kept hearing, um, I kept hearing echoes of the gospel of John, Brent. And we talked about this when we were doing John, but when I read, when the, when the shift of John happened, if you remember, we had two sections of John, Ooh, two sections of John, two sections of John and two sections of Isaiah. I find that intriguing. Oh, Oh, yes. We had the book of signs, which took us through, I think we said John one through 11 or 12 ish. And then John 13 on, we called the book of, did we, did we decide on the book of glory or the book of, of ours, Brent? The book of glory. The book of glory. And in, right in the middle of that, there's this big discourse about the Holy Spirit. Just like in the same way in Isaiah, there's this big discourse about God's servant. Um, I, I, I think of, can, can you find which episodes those were where we might have talked about John 13, particularly the conversation about the Holy Spirit as the helper, the parakletos. Yeah. John 13 would be episode 289. How about John 14, 15, uh, even 16? 290, 91, 92, 93, Okay, so if, you, <laughs> if you want to go, yeah, go review those conversations, it would be those. But if you remember, if you go back to that conversation in that series, we talked about how Jesus is having this conversation and kind of the climax of that conversation for me is maybe not the climax, but one of the high points of that is when he's having this conversation with Philip and they're like, but where are you going? And Jesus is like, you know, the way. And Philip says, I, I don't really know the way. And Jesus is saying, I, I, I am the way, which we just completely, it's again, it's one of those rut verses you were talking about before Brent, we completely stop listening. We only do like a few things with that verse. And we kind of miss that verse in context where Jesus is saying, I, I am the way, but a larger part of what he's saying is I'm showing you how to do, not just I am that thing, but I'm also showing you how to do the thing the way that I'm doing it. And so we said in our John study that what Jesus was talking about was how to suffer because he was about to go suffer. And he was telling them, you do know the way I'm about ready to show you the way and you will follow me on that way, which Philip did. And, and so I, I, I keep studying Isaiah. And again, I, I think that's what we, we, a lot of people have, have kind of expressed that at times they've been frustrated about how hard I push this whole prophecy is not talking about Jesus. It's not talking about Jesus. It's not talking about Jesus. Messianic prophecy doesn't function that way. It doesn't function that way. And part of the reason I do that is because I think we really, really miss something so applicable, something so practical and what Jesus is inviting us to when we make it about him and not us. Um, yes, there was messianic overtones. And yes, Jesus did it perfectly and fulfilled it unlike anybody ever has or ever will. But the call, the immediate call, even the call that Jesus was giving to his own disciples was a call for us. And again, my one of my favorite statements, Jesus didn't go to the cross so that we didn't have to. Jesus went to the cross to show us how to. My favorite statements that I've heard somebody else say, I don't remember who it was, but Jesus didn't go to the cross that I don't have to. Jesus went to the cross to show me how to. And so in the midst of that, I think back on this section and I think of God saying, yes, you're in exile. Yes, you are in suffering. 
yes, you're going to go through this, but here's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be your helper. I'm going to be your advocate. I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be your savior. I'm going to be your counselor. I'm going to be this person that you need me to be through the suffering. Now, what did John say the Holy Spirit was going to do? Brent and John will be your helper, be your helper. He'll be your counselor. He'll be your advocate. He'll be your parakletos, which meant the one who comes alongside. It just feels very, very, very Isaiah-y to me. I've never heard anybody necessarily make that connection. We, we kind of referenced it in our earlier John episodes. But for me, I feel this, uh, this connection between the John discourse and what's happening in Isaiah. And our call as followers of Jesus to realize that sometimes what God's going to do is he's going to call us to suffer well, because in that we're going to become the partner that we want. We're going to become the servant that he has chosen, the servant that he's formed in the womb, the one who's going to be a light to the Gentiles and those who are on the outside. They're going to be able to see God because not, not just because we have suffered, but because of how we've chosen to suffer when we do. And again, don't get that twisted into some other teaching about trauma and all those kind of things. Cause that's a, I think in a lot of ways, it's a different conversation, but I find that to be so very helpful. Any thoughts on that, Brent, before you close? Well, not necessarily on that, but just on Isaiah 47 and the perspective of Babylon, like it's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I gave, I gave my people over to you to be conquered. It's one thing to just conquer them as a nation. It's another thing to, to take them and, abuse them and think that it was all your own doing and and you can just do whatever you want and you can love your pleasure and lounge in your security and say, you know, I'm never going to have any of these problems. But you didn't stop to consider what the effects of what you're doing might have. Right. And then, like, you shouldn't be surprised. Yeah, sure. Yep. Well, I think we should close with one more chapter, Brent. I read 47. How about you read 48? Not that it's going to be this glorious, happy. There are going to be some brilliant, beautiful, poetic things that are said here. But my my heading says stubborn Israel. So we know that we're... Stubborn Israel. Which might be an overstatement. But nevertheless, uh, we know that we're not in for just, you know, you know, care bears and happiness here in Isaiah 48. But I do feel like it's a great chapter just to kind of pull all of these ideas together and hear it in a closing Closing chapter. Listen to this, you descendants of Jacob, you who are called by the name of Israel and come from the line of Judah, you who take oaths in the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness, you who call yourselves citizens of the holy city and claim to rely on the God of Israel, the Lord Almighty is his name. I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them and I made them known. Then suddenly I acted and they came to pass. For I knew how stubborn you were. Your neck muscles were iron. Your forehead was bronze. Therefore, I told you these things long ago. Before they happened, I announced them to you so that you could not say, My images brought them about. My wooden image and metal god ordained them. You have heard these things. Look at them all. Will you not admit them? All right. So we have this. I mean, 47, we just heard God really go after Babylon and denounce them. And now the reason in 48, when my subtitle says stubborn Israel, because here's this Israel that's that's still wanting to clamp down into this world, this Babylonian paradigm, and some of them, and we know this from history, like for some people, Babylon treated them quite well. 
Not everybody was on the bottom of the power pyramid. Some people got invited further and further up the power pyramid in order to Babylon's trying to seductively pull the people of God into this Babylonian way. And so there are some descendants of Jacob, verse number one, who have who have held hands with, who have joined themselves with the Babylonians. And after God denounces Babylon, he says, now, hold on, those of you that think this is going to go well for you, very much consider uh, how this story is going to pan out. So go ahead and keep going. From now on, I will tell you of new things, of hidden things unknown to you. They are created now and not long ago. You have not heard of them before today. So you cannot say, yes, I knew of them. You have neither heard nor understood. From of old, your ears have not been opened. Well do I know how treacherous you are. You were called a rebel from birth. For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you, so as not to destroy you completely. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Listen to me, Jacob, Israel, whom I have called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My own hand laid the foundations of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I summon them, they all stand together. Come together, all of you, and listen. Which of the idols has foretold these things? The Lord's chosen ally will carry out his purpose against Babylon. His arm will be against the Babylonians. I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I will bring him, and he will succeed in his mission. I don't know if there's anything relevant in those words for us. I mean, I don't know. Asking us to consider what we've made alliances with, whether or not we really believe God is the one that's actually in charge of things. I'm sure there's nothing in there. Never mind. (laughs) Uh, Come near to me and listen to this. From the first announcement, I have not spoken in secret. At the time it happens, I am there. And now the Sovereign Lord has sent me, endowed with his Spirit. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God, who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands. Your peace would have been like a river, your well-being like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand, your children like its numberless grains. Their name would never be blotted out, nor destroyed from before me. Leave Babylon, flee from the Babylonians. Announce this with shouts of joy and proclaim it. Send it out to the ends of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock, and water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. And the call to leave and flee from the Babylonians, something that I think Revelation is calling back to here is this passage in. Be careful how you, Revelation, John would... Man, does John love Isaiah? I just realize it's John again. John must love Isaiah. Makes sense to me. <laughs> Indeed. But there you go. All right. I think that'll do it for today. We got some more to talk about in the next episode, but uh, it's a good spot to stop. All right. You can go to BamaDeception.com, find those show notes. I think we mostly just referenced previous episodes we've done today. <laughs> We're quoting ourselves. Uh, everything else is there as well. All the events we have coming up, the contact page is the best way to get in touch. 
So you can find all that on the website. And thanks for joining us on the BMO podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.